Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week. He says, thank you for taking my call. And, you know, I know that I've emailed you before, and I so appreciate that you did take my call, but now I've got another question. I have been doing everything you have said that I should do. I have proved to my wife that I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make her feel happy, healthy, and whole. And I am using AVR like crazy with her. And Carol, it's not working. What can I do? Well, you know... That is a loaded question. First of all, this stuff takes time, and it really does take a concerted amount of effort to continue to do something that may look like it's not producing results. Now, there are three types of partners, and I'm going to ask you which one is is your partner. And this is for anybody out there who may be married and using Help Her Heal, the empathy workbook for sex addicts to help their partners heal. Um, The first kind of partner has been traumatized, and she really, really, really wants to see that the addict has changed his ways, his or her, but we'll say his right now. And despite the fact that she doesn't trust, because she's not going to get duped again, she does notice your changes, and she softens with those changes. Maybe not every time, but she does soften. 
And you can see that this is making an amazing difference in how the two of you are functioning. That's one type of partner. I don't know what makes her different from the second kind of partner. The partner who is so traumatized that she protects herself or himself um, by keeping you at bay, pointing out all your faults, criticizing your efforts, um, just not, she's not willing or able, I guess I should say she's not able to deal with any positive change. She doesn't buy it. She doesn't believe it. She doesn't, she wants it. She needs it, but she's afraid. And so how does that show up? That shows up with anger, disbelief, criticism, sarcasm. And so you're pulling your hair out because you're doing all the right things and it does not seem to be working at all. And so that might be the partner that you're describing right now in the email. I know you called me before. We talked about what you needed to do, and now you're not seeing the changes. Okay, that's partner number two. So just to reiterate, we have partner number one, who is able to see the changes and is able to acknowledge them ever so slightly and slowly. We have the next partner who is so guarded, so defended, so angry, so sarcastic, so critical, and is not willing to give you any grace. But I promise you, she still wants to see that you're doing the work. And then we have the third kind of partner who is so wounded that she's really not able to comment either way. So she's not even able to give you positive feedback. But she's also not really energetic enough to give you any feedback. And, you know, that's probably a very depressed person who has just taken this betrayal trauma and sucked it up, soaked it up. I mean, she has, it has enveloped her. And we, we say she's in the lower end of outside the window of tolerance. She's depressed. She's lethargic. She's not moving. She's not commenting. She's not fighting. She's not She's not there. Now, obviously everybody wants a first partner, right? Because that's the partner that's going to be kind of resilient and, and show you right away that she's willing to accept some of the changes. But the truth of the matter is many, many, many sex addicts have partner number two and three. So what do you do? Well, it's the same thing that I tell parents who are practicing good parenting skills, that they're not seeing the changes that they want to see. I say don't give up. 
keep doing the next right thing. Keep moving one foot in front of the other. Practice the skills. Do them faithfully. And at least you can look at yourself, identify that you have integrity, and you're willing to help her heal. Now, here's the bad news. You know that my premise is that when you can see some positive change, when you as an addict know that you've caused the partner pain, and you keep reminding her of that and you see forward movement, it helps you to heal too. So it's, um, it's a positive cycle. You know, we talk about things being auto-exacerbating, which means that they feed off of each other. They contribute towards each other. And obviously the word exacerbating means not in a positive way. Well, when you practice the right skills, it should make a difference. It means you have to give it more time. You have to be more patient. You have to contain her feelings, right? You've got to do this because you caused it. And now you've got to put in the work. So what do you do if you don't see that it's changing? You know, that is such a good question, and I want you to be protected. I want you to take into consideration that you are moving forward. You are practicing skills and principles and techniques that should be making a difference. And if it's not, and if she's still really, really angry, then I want you to use the seven principles of conflict after betrayal. Yep. It's chapter seven in my book on conflict. And those seven principles are, how has your past contributed to your present day problems? Remember that 90% is about your past and not who you are today. So if there's conflict in the relationship, you gotta say to yourself, not to her and partners if you're listening, I do want them to say this to themselves because they've got to protect themselves. They've got to keep working at it. They've got to develop more resiliency. So first of all, you say, okay, I know, I know, I know. She's angry about the past. She's angry about who I was. She's angry about the pain I caused. And 90% of that anger is about my past but it's not who I am today. Then principle number two, how do you hold yourself accountable for the pain that you've caused without going into the shame cycle? That is super important. So I want you to imagine you're a metaphor. You are a vessel for her pain. You're just going to hold it for her. You're going to say, I'm going to sit with you while you Deal with this sadness because I know I caused it and you deserve me to sit right with you and watch you go through it because we're both miserable. 
Principle number three. You have to remind yourself as an addict who is willing to do what it takes and is practicing good skills that this is not in response to who you are today, and that's the good news. Now, principle number four, how will you be able to know that you're strong enough to endure her pain? How can you help her work through her own trauma and move beyond it and still work on your own recovery? I'm telling you, when I talk to addicts who show emotional maturity and they're like, I will sit with this because I know I did this and she deserves me to stand with her through this horrible pain. I think to myself, now that is a man who's learned emotional maturity. That's a man who wants to do it differently. So principle number five. Principle number five says, how do you remind yourself that the issue is not about you? It's about her trauma response from your acting out in the past. You have to keep saying, this is her trauma. This isn't even her. This is her trauma protecting her and keeping us at a distance because she feels safer that way. And then principle number six, you say to yourself, hey, this is not who I am today. This is about the consequences of my past actions. And I need to continue to recognize that these are the consequences of my past and I will stay healthy as long as I stay in good recovery and sit with her and her pain. And then principle number seven is how can I tell myself I won't give my past guilt and shame the power to make me feel blank? Maybe the blank is inadequate. Maybe the blank is inferior, guilty, shamed, hurt. You pick the word. But you say to yourself, I won't give my past guilt and shame the power to make me feel blank. So find that word, put it in the example, and then what I really want you to know is that you can get through this. You can stand strong. It's part of who you are in your recovery, your relational recovery. Oh, the sexual addiction is tough stuff. And that's why I have on Michael Solace from Vantage Point Dallas Counseling. You know, he is really working on the controversy of so many therapists that, A, either don't think sexual addiction exists, um, or B, You know, they don't know what it is, and so they just misunderstand. And they say, I'm not going to endorse that. That's boys just being boys. That's women on the Internet. You know, there's no such thing as sexual addiction. And if we call it what the World Health Organization has called it, you know, um, compulsive problematic sexual behavior, People haven't even heard of that term yet, so they're really confused. And, and so Michael says that even though many therapists don't agree on what sex addiction is or even if it exists, we as a community of helpers have to get clear about this. 
so that we can treat the behavior that's interfering with individual recovery and personal growth in relationships. And so what can we do as a community to unpack our clients' narratives and help them establish boundaries and find the label that best fits them. I, you know, I, re- I recently spoke to a group of National Association of Social Workers, and I did that on uh, helping couples through sexual addiction. And I got a call from the executive director of our Indiana branch, and she said, Carol, We have people from ASECT, which is a wonderful organization of sex educators and counselors, but they don't believe in sexual addiction. And so they were really raising a fuss over the fact that I was going to do a workshop on it because they felt I was um, proposing something that didn't exist. And, you know, I said to her, let's change the name. It's not important what we call it. It's important how we treat it. And I'm not hung up on sexual addiction. I can call it compulsive problematic sexual behavior or sexual problematic behavior. What matters to me is that I, as a therapist, help my clients and their families get healthy. And so I'm not going to get all worked up, even when there are some organizations that say this sex addiction is all made up to provide propaganda so that certified sexual addiction therapists can make money off of people. So, Michael, I want to welcome you to the show because I know you've heard it just like I have. Welcome to Sex yes. Help with Carol the Coach. Yeah. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Well, yeah, it it felt like I had read some of your blogs, some of your emails, and it felt like you really understood the dilemma that we're facing as we're working with these folks. So tell me a little bit about how you got involved with the struggle and the controversy. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, so um, I'm trying to think of when I – got into the CSAC community probably seven years ago or so now. Um, And anyway, I was working a lot with sex addiction at the time, and I uh, wanted to get some uh, kind of deeper work in sex therapy to help some of the couples I was working with reconnect. Uh, So I I knew prior to that that sex addiction was kind of a hot topic um, term, but um, it was when I joined the ASEC. A community that I realized how kind of what a hot button issue it was. And so um, I was kind of trying, I, I was seeing some stuff and I thought that they were, you know, really good um, legitimate conversations about, you know, what's, what's the right terminology? What should we be doing? How should we be, best be helping our clients? But then I also saw some things that sometimes weren't, um, kind of spot on with my experience. And so the way that I kind of was in the controversy was when I started sharing my experience a little bit. And um, I think like a lot of us kind of at this point, we're kind of in this, um, these polarized kind of conversations for lots of reasons. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. there was kind of a pull to have it become polarized. And so I think that, um, you know, when when I was kind of trying to hang in the middle and try to have kind of a, a balanced conversation about the experience that I had had, um, I think there was kind of a um, 
online in some of the organizations that I was part of, kind of some pool to kind of go one way or the other. Um, so that was kind of, I think, how I got in the controversy was oddly hanging in the middle. <laughs> and so right. um, trying to focus more on focus more on the clients and not just the politics of it all. Well, that makes sense. So in some ways, you, like so many of us, are caught in the middle. And I even feel like ASAC professionals are caught in the middle because they've been very oriented and trained to be porn neutral and sexuality neutral. And it does feel like we in the CSAC community are perhaps pathologizing our clients by saying they have an addiction. Would you not agree? Yeah. So yeah, I've I've experienced I've experienced that sometimes with um, like uh, younger therapists that I'm working with. You know, I I, I supervise um, interns, and so sometimes I'll hear them um, say, you know, if if you're a CSAT, is aren't you shaming um, uh, clients? You know, from even just having the credential, um, and so what what I end up hearing from them kind of later on as they're, you know, kind of moving through their uh, professional growth experience is that, you know, they have people who come in and the person's in crisis and feels like they can't stop, um, uh, you know, if, if pornography is one possible example. And they're and they're kind of puzzled because they're like, okay, wait, I, I don't. This isn't what I was anticipating when I was hearing that the label would be shameful. I didn't know, you know, I wasn't really well equipped on what I actually need to do with this by just being told that this didn't exist. Um, and so when when you know I was trying to kind of um, actually when I you know wrote wrote the book, one of my goals was to kind of help people. Um, think beyond, you know, um, whether they think the label exists or not as a therapist and instead focus on if you have somebody sitting in front of you and they think that that is what is going on with them or they're in crisis, um, you know, this is one label that can give you some kind of language to kind of walk with them through whatever they're going through. Um, so, yeah, that definitely is uh, um big part of the experience that I've had as well. Yeah. Now tell everybody about the book you wrote and the reasoning behind the book. Yeah. So um, I initially, so the book is called uh, Bridging the Sex Addiction Divide. Um, It's uh, got a subtitle, Mindful Considerations for Vulnerable Clients. Um, uh, One of the big controversies, or a lot of the controversies that are, surrounding the label of sex addiction are um, concerns that it's shaming for LGBTQ clients, uh, for non-monogamous clients, and for those who are involved in in kink or um, uh, BDSM and and, um, some of these kinds of sexual um, uh, lifestyle behaviors, et cetera. And so um, what I initially started writing the book, though, was actually it was just kind of – writing through some stuff because I actually needed to sort through some stuff on my own (laughs) Um, as I was kind of hanging in the middle and kind of uh, ended up in the crossfire a little bit. I was trying to figure out how can I be part of both of these communities and should I? 
to be transparent. And I kind of get into that a little bit um, in the book. Um, and so I was kind of trying to sort out, is there a middle ground? Is that even possible? Um, I ended up figuring out that there was. Uh, <laughs> so that was a good thing. But um, And I also was back-channeled a lot of the time um, by a lot of therapists who were feeling um, similar, uh, who that were who were you know kind of wanting to um, just help the clients that they were, and they didn't really want to be involved specifically in the in the political crossfire that was kind of going on. And so I knew there was a, a need for this in our you know in our field. So I picked the three groups that I identified as you know pretty controversial um, and um, tried to lay out how we can help them, um, how we can help them if they come in and they actually do have, you know, compulsive sexual behavior, or sometimes they might think they do. Um, and, it, you know, it'll turn out over time that they may, may realize, oh, what I, what I was thinking of with compulsive sexual behavior was just me kind of coming to terms with my need to be authentic. Um, and, mm -hmm. and sometimes there's some overlap, too. Um, and so I wrote a book um, that kind of helped me even further sort it out for myself, to be honest. <laughs> and um, and mm -hmm. then I wanted to, you know, share that with others. So that was how I how I developed the book. Well, yeah, and, and without stereotyping, certainly um, with my work with homosexual or bisexual men men more than women, um, they typically do experiment a little bit more and they do so with multiple partners. And so they will come in and say, I think I might have a sexual addiction. And as we tease that out, it's really the community that they're in. It's not compulsive. They just find themselves acting out what the community suggests. And so it's kind of like so much of our work. I, sometimes people will come in and say, I molested a neighbor, you know, when I was seven. Sure. And then I find out, well, it's really sex play. It wasn't molestation. There was sure. no force. Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. So I agree with you that it really requires that we tease it out and, and help them to determine your feelings about it, what was the environment like, and and that compulsivity or lack thereof. So would you talk sure, about yeah. the three main groups that your book discusses? Sure, yeah. So I work a lot um, myself with um, the LGBTQ community, lesbian, gay, bisexual, uh, transgender, queer. We also work a lot with people who are um, gender non-binary, um, in our office, so people who don't specifically um, identify with the um, with the two genders that our culture basically um, prescribes us, um, and so um, uh, I, I also do a lot of work with. Um, um, in the book, I kind of put, and it, it gets complicated, but I basically put this. Um, in kind of one group, but people who come in with um, what would historically be described as fetish, uh, fetishistic um, desires. I put that in quotes in the book because um, it's, 
again, it's another label. <laughs> it's the label that we use, but again, we use labels to um, kind of help us easily kind of classify something. Um, and so I'm not positive that it's the best way to classify, <laughs> but um, but it was a way in the book to kind of talk about a certain a certain group of people. So people who um, may have some desire to certain situations, certain objects, and and um, the idea that you know adult sexuality is consensual, and so as long as people are open and they're having open discussions about this, you know, then then um, than, you know, whatever people want to do. Uh, BDSM and kink, you know, um, um, kind of more, um, you know, kinky behaviors, sometimes some um, mindful um, uh, pain and uh, um, use of pain um, in sex or uh, dominant, uh, dominance and submission, that type of thing. And then um, uh, non-monogamy. And so consensual non-monogamy where, People are making decisions to have an open relationship, to um, uh, be polyamorous, you know, date multiple people, but they're being open about it. They're not not keeping secrets. And so those are the the three primary groups that I've seen a lot of controversy on um, about sex addiction and the and the concern that um, sex addiction is uh, shaming uh, to those groups. And and some believe that it's inherently shaming. I think that there's a way to have a more nuanced conversation about it. Absolutely. So then you have found that within the CSAC community, there are people that maybe misdiagnose or um, lump together uh, clients under just one umbrella. Right. And I don't, but here's the the thing, and I I get into this in the book too. I don't actually think it's just the CSAC community. I think our field um, has a history of this, um, you know, and it, you know, our field has a history of using labels in kind of a particular way. So um, I know this particular label has its, um, you know, has a lot of controversy. But the the truth is, is that you know, the DSM is built on labels. Um, they, um, a lot of the labels um, uh, struggle with research, you know, which is one of the controversies around sex addiction is that the, you know, some people don't feel that the, the research uh, demonstrates it adequately. But, you know, the truth is, is that uh, all, oh, you know, not all of them, but a lot of the labels in the DSM um, don't have the research to, show that, you know, 100% we know that that's what we should call it. So, um, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of possible ways that um, the label, um, so it's not just CSAT, that's ultimately what I'm saying. So there's a lot of possible ways that uh, labeling can be harmful if we're not doing it mindfully. And so uh, sex addiction is just one of those labels. Um, so I don't think that it's just specific to CSATs. Now, I do think um, our field has a long history with homosexuality, for example. It was in the DSM. Um, I think we're still overcoming that history. Um, there are groups of um, certain organizations who will use the term sex addiction, and they're not all CSAT-based. Uh, a lot of them, I would say maybe the majority of them are not. 
um, where they will say that they are, um, they'll tell gay men, you need to go and work on your sex addiction for your sexual orientation. And so because they're using that already hot button term, um, you know, it makes, it makes our work kind of harder in a way in that we're, we're trying to help people look at their shame and, and, and work through and reduce their shame around their, you know, sexual orientation. But then we have programs like that that are sinking um, uh, sex addiction with, um, you know, things that are unethical, like conversion therapy. So. Yeah. And and that's how I think about that a minute, because not all of our listeners know about conversion Therapy, and sure. I, you know, I know that oftentimes, um, well, well, you and I both do not endorse in any way, shape, or form conversion therapy. But sometimes, when one identifies as gay or lesbian, and their faith doesn't believe this is appropriate, they might recommend conversion therapy. So, tell our listening audience what conversion therapy is. Yeah, so, yeah, it's um, under uh, conversion therapy or reparative therapy, um, and there's a few other um, kind of key terms that people need to kind of watch out for, like same-sex attraction. That tends to be another term. But basically it's the idea that somebody should um, change their uh, sexual orientation or kind of more modern, um, more modern focus is um, – that you have, you know, the, these people will tell their clients that they have same sex attractions um, that they should control. And so um, the, the uh, goal a lot of times is, although, that, although you have that, that's something that you need to manage. You need to learn how to control that. Um, you need to live a um, uh, heterosexual lifestyle. Um, and so it's a, really a push for people to live um, a heterosexual lifestyle. Yeah, and what was that movie that was so popular probably two years ago? Wasn't it with Nicole Kidman and um, – Oh, yeah, Boy, uh, Boy Race. Yes, exactly. And and certainly I, I made the assumption you're not at all – and a proponent of conversion or reparative therapy, and I know I'm not. Um, and yet, well, I'm, I'm gay, all- <laughs> so, so no, I'm not. I'm, a, I'm openly gay, so no, uh, definitely not. <laughs> so now let, let's talk about not your open gayness, but you know, obviously <laughs> there are lots of different people in different categories. I know that I worked for a hospital setting, and I got all the requests for assistance in transgender assignment and fetishes and, and like cross-dressing. And, you know, there are just sure. a lot of assumptions. First of all, most therapists don't want to talk about sex at all. They'd rather leave sure. that off the table. And I get that. Sure. It's definitely, um, you, but you still need to be educated about it. Now, what do you believe it means if a man is wearing women's clothing? Um, yeah, it can mean a lot of things. And so you have to have a very, you know, kind of nuanced, uh, individual conversation about it. It, um, it can mean nothing. (laughs) So what I mean by that is it can really mean, um, 
he might just like the feel of um, certain types of clothing. Um, a lot of times in my experience, when I've worked with people on that, um, sometimes uh, there's some education about it, but the, you know, it, it might be the feel of uh, certain fabrics, um, you know, that, um, you know, uh, women's underwear is what I would use as an example, as a kind of stereotypical example, but, um, but they might like the feel of that. Um, it can mean, um, you know, that there's some gender exploration <clears throat> that the person, you know, that that person is, um curious about, you know, so that that, that um, man may have some um, um, curiosity about um, exploring their gender and may, um, um, you know, may, it's hard to say that just based on that experience, you know, but may uh, question their gender more, I guess, I guess is a better way. Uh, you know, a lot of times therapists may think that, or, or even partners might think that that means that their, you know, husband is, is gay. I, I don't, um, there's not a lot of evidence that, you know, most gay men honestly like to wear um, men's clothing. <laughs> you know, just fine. We like men's clothing. So, um, so it doesn't necessarily um, mean um, anything in particular about sexual orientation, um, if, uh, some, you know, if, if, if a man is wearing, uh, women's clothing, it may mean something about gender. Um, and it may mean something really big about gender in that, um, the person is questioning their gender. It may mean something very, you know, minor and that, um, they just like the, a little bit of exploration, a little bit of the feel, um, that kind of a thing. Um, but it, it rarely, um, means something specific about sexual orientation. And, and, you know, so, again, that's where we cannot make one assumption. I mean, I, I can really appreciate right. the fact that there just may be curiosity. There may be that kinesthetic component where it's not so much female clothing. I mean, many men that I've worked with, especially gay men, actually, um, they like wearing panties because of the nylon or the silk, but they also like wearing tight undergarments that our workout clothes, they love the feel. And I get that. Um, yeah, yeah. Let me ask you, uh, do you believe that mixed orientation marriages work? I mean, because we're seeing more and more of that. Yeah, so um, not a lot. And so I know that's <laughs> that's a pretty bold statement. Um so where I have seen them work, and so by mixed orientation marriage, you know, um, you know, gay, straight, lesbian, straight, um, or um, one that a lot of people don't think about um, because I think people think that bisexual people can live a straight lifestyle, but bisexual straight is still a mixed orientation marriage. And uh, more and more people are coming out in their marriages as, you know, bisexual or pansexual. So um, in, in bisexual, pansexual marriages, um, you know, a lot of times what it shifts is sort of the, the um, authenticity component of somebody being more open about that part of who they are. But somebody, you know, it, it's just as likely that somebody who's bisexual might want a monogamous relationship as anyone else. 
um, when the person so when I say not usually I'm speaking more about the um, the gay um, straight um, mixed orientation marriage and in those situations a lot of times um, there's a desire to you know date and 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 um, and explore a, a type of love that you know hadn't really happened before um, and that can take its toll on on the marriage now I have worked with um, and have had colleagues who have worked with some older couples um, who um, you know have just been together for so you know for so long that they're feeling like they don't you know want to change things the The other thing that's kind of tricky about that particular situation is I don't always see them you know, years down the road. Sometimes I do, but I, I, you know, sometimes you don't know what ends up happening, you know, in our client stories. Um, and the other ones that I will see, you know, sometimes work out is if the, if, if they decide to have a consensual um, non-monogamous relationship where they, um, you know, uh, mindfully open up their relationship and, um, and, you know, set some solid boundaries around that. Uh, but that's, you know, a lot of times it's still hard. Well, absolutely. And, you know, you're bringing up terminology that I think most of us understand, but I'm just going to clarify. Sure. Pansexual. What is that? Pan- pansexual is... Um, um, I'll oversimplify <laughs> so it's, because it can, there can be a lot of variants, but it's based in, in a real basic definition. It's, it's um, a, attraction, desire, relational desire with um, people of, of um, all genders. And so um, all genders, meaning not just, um, uh, you know, man, woman, you know, cisgender, man or woman, cisgender, meaning, um, uh, living in the gender we were, were assigned, um, uh, but also um, transgender, um, and um, and there's a you know a lot of genders actually. There's not just two, which is you know our culture thinks of just two genders, but um, so as someone who can has the potential to be in a relationship or attracted to any of of, of these genders. And so I guess when we were talking about that, you do believe that mixed orientation marriages can work. It's really up to the individual couple. Yes, clients, absolutely. I think clients need to be figuring out what they want in their own lives. And something that I think therapists need to do is a lot of times we need to step back and, you know, kind of reframe Um, hold a mirror up to our clients and say, hey, what do you see? Not telling them what we see. Um, (laughs) So um, if, you know, um, if if that is something that they feel like they want, um, you know, uh, it's not out of the realm of possibility. There are situations where it it is possible. I, um, research shows that a lot of times it doesn't work, but you know, again, people need to make their own individual goals. Well, and so, yes, they can work, but research shows generally 
that might be too much of a stretch in terms of their values, their um, ability to be fluid with each other. Um, right, right. You know, so many of my clients and friends that were gay or lesbian prior to them either coming out or recognizing that were married, and, you know, and they, they lived sure, a heterosexual sure. lifestyle until they chose not to. Sure. What do you think about that? What do you, what, what well, do, you I, do if you realize that you're gay or lesbian and you're married in a heterosexual relationship? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, first of all, I think that it's understandable. I mean, there's a whole generation that, um, um, I mean, it can happen to, I don't want to make it sound like it can't happen to the millennial generation, but there, there, there are, I, I think it's less common um, in that generation. You know, we, um, again, you know, we, there's a whole generation where it, you know, it was very pathologized um, and it wasn't that long ago, you know, to be considered, you know, um, you know, gay or lesbian or, um, uh you know, what they would call the homosexual, you know, if I put that in quotation. So um, it was, it was very shaming and it, you know, it it still can be in communities, you know, depending on what community you're in. So um, it's first, I think the first thing to do is some self um, affirmation about um, that, you know, personal experience. Um, it's okay to be scared. It's okay to feel um, uh, fearful of, of losing connections in your life. And, and sometimes people are, you know, I think because we progressively are, you know, moving to, you know, thankfully a society that's, you know, more open-minded. But I think in some ways we feel like people should be farther along than they are on their journey and so I think sometimes it's important to just remind people that it's okay to feel a struggle with that um, because I think that that's where people can really start even shaming themselves for struggling as much as they are. And um, what I really recommend people do is they, you know, maybe uh, try to find somebody who they think is going to be um, supportive and not tell them um you know, what to do. They're just going to let them kind of have their feelings. You know, obviously you and I, because we're in the field, I tend to recommend, you know, people find an affirming therapist, you know, or a therapist who has some understanding of, of, um, you know, LGBTQ um, uh, coming out processes and that kind of a thing. But it doesn't always have to be a therapist. I mean, a lot of times people are stunned that there is a friend who is really willing to be supportive. Um, and um, so sometimes people, if they can identify, you know, a couple of those people, uh, I think sometimes in the, in the 12, you know, in some of the 12-step communities that our clients go to, there's some really affirming people in those communities. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's, it's fine to put some trust in, in, in one of those people, too. Um, so I, I think trying to find those people who you know are going to, um, uh, just kind of let you walk through it without judgment and without shaming you. Um, I think that can be a powerful first step. Um, I, you know, it, sometimes that's a partner. 
to be truthful, a lot of times partners do have a sense. Uh, they do, they have always kind of wondered. Um, and in those situations, it can actually bring a level. It doesn't mean that it's easy for the partner, um, but it can bring a level of validation for the partner too um, when they find out. And so um, sometimes, uh, you know, partners and, and the couple together are able to kind of hold some space for each other. That really just, you know, depends on the situation. But, just you know, trying to look in your life and, first of all, validating yourself and your own emotions on it and then trying to figure out, um, you know, if they're, you know, who are those safe people to, to start talking to about it. Well, you know, you mentioned therapists and, I'm wondering what would your recommendation be if somebody, you know, under understandably says, you know what, I am part of the LBGT community or I know that I'm gay but I'm married or how can they seek the best help possible? You know, I know that you can't possibly know every state, every agency, but what would you tell them to do? Where do they Google? What do they do? Sure. Yeah. Um, looking at, um, there's a few things they can do. Um, so I'll say this though. It's not, the line isn't only that, um, specifically whether the therapist is, is, um, uh, friendly to, um, you know, LGBTQ people, because I have worked, um, with clients who have gone to see, a therapist who says, you know, look, this is who you are. You need to accept that. You need to come out. You need to and 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 pushing people before they're ready um, has um, some potential harmful effects too, because it can kind of um, sometimes people can get too overwhelmed. Um, you know, in our work, a lot of times we're trying to help people walk through things without having them blow up you know, basically, um, and, and get overwhelmed. Um, so, you know, a lot of times therapy pushes clients on the edge of, of, you know, what they, you know, their current tolerance level is to the situations they're in or the emotions that they're dealing with. And we're also talking about people who might uh, be dealing with uh, compulsive behaviors. And so, you know, if that person does have that, it means that they likely struggle with some um, emotional coping skills already. And so what you, one of the things you do want to have a therapist who is, who is maybe going to nudge you but not insist that you do anything specific. Um, well, uh, there, could, there could be some boundaries that, I mean, and some outliers there always are. But in general, one who is going to appreciate you, um, you know, kind of living your own life in a way that feels right for you at the time. And, um, and so um, that, you know, can mean um, – you know, somebody who just, um, you know, sits and listens to why you're, you're not ready to tell anybody. Um, and so it, it just depends on, on, on what your current needs are. Um, you know, maybe that's one step that I'd recommend is, you know, what, what do you feel like you're ready to do and finding, you know, asking that therapist, you know, how much would you push me? Um, if, if there is kind of, um, some pattern of compulsivity too. Um, you know, I think that it's important to have a therapist who is LGBT, you know, Q affirming friendly, but also who is going to work on, you know, emotional um, intelligence and, and, you know, and helping you become aware of your, 
your emotions as well. And um, and so the questions I'd really be asking are, you know, you can ask, are you affirming, are you friendly, but also, you know, are you going to let me walk through this journey at my own pace or, you know, are you going <laughs> to insist that I walk through it at, you know, your pace instead? I think it's okay to, you know, get pretty uh, frank with the people that you might be working with and building this really powerful relationship with. Yeah, so what you're really saying is that it's important for our clients when they know something doesn't feel right to to be able to assert themselves with their therapist and remind them that they probably know what's best for them. And if the therapist continues to push, it may be time for a different therapist. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. So I I so appreciate the work you're doing with clients. Let everybody know about your website and how they can get a hold of you if they need further information. I know that you can be found at www.vantagepointdallascounseling.com. Do you ever do any virtual work? Um, uh, No. um, um, It is all local. I do have you know, therapists on my team who do it, but I, I really um, like that, you know, kind of face-to-face work. So that's, that's work that I do with clients. Um, but yeah. And, um, and so you, yeah, and, and people can, oh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> well, I was going to say, and does your website have any resources that somebody could check out and get more information about these topics in general? Yes. So we, um, Thanks for asking that. Um, we have a huge blog <laughs> on our website with tons of information about, um, you know, relationships, sex, uh, sexual orientation, self-acceptance, you know, on a variety of issues. Um, and also um, a lot of information on, on, on trauma and, you know, the compulsive um, sexual parts as well. Um and so our, our website's a great place to go for that. Um, and um, there's a little bit on social media too, but I, I would say that um, I would say our, our primary hub for everything. And there's actually a resource uh, hub on our website where um, people can um, get a lot of just kind of basic information about um, um, that, whether it's sex addiction, sex therapy, um, sexual dysfunction, you know, a lot of different things about sex and relationships, and, and also trauma. We do a lot of trauma work here. Um, well, thank you so much for making this uh, a platform. I definitely heard you saying you had some questions, and so you started doing the research, and obviously you got a passion, and it seems like you're an advocate. So, Michael Sellis, thank you again for sharing your wise information with us. Yeah, thank thank you so much for having me. All right. You make it a good one and talk to you soon. Okay, all right. All right, see ya. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. All right. So as you can see, you know, this is always an interesting topic because lots and lots of people wonder what's right, what's wrong, who are they, what can they ask for, who can they talk to? And that's what this show is all about, giving you information so that you're not alone in, in your journey. Hey, I'm Carol Jurgensen-Sheets, 
a.k.a. Carol the Coach. I want you all to have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And we'll catch you here next Monday night, same time, same place, for Sex Help with Carol the Coach. And there will only be one of you at all times, so fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. Make it a good one.